Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. I will tell you then how I, Ueshiba, was able to understand it. I had performed spiritual practices daily in order to rid myself of attachments to anything in the world, and I had the experience of seeing my light body, which was once the body of Furomyo, carrying a great shining light of fire on its shoulders, and at another time I became the body of Kanzeon Bosatsu, I asked questions to myself and then understood. I have the universe inside me. Everything is in me. I am the universe itself, so there is no me. Moreover, since I am the universe, there is only me and no other. That is one more quote from O Sensei from the writing. Takamusaiki. Clearly, again, as we continue this talk and the mysticism of Osensei, we see all the elements of mysticism. What if we took seriously these utterances? which, to be accurate, were taken seriously by some of his deshi. But the great shihan that came to dominate the later half of the 20th century and played such pivotal roles in the formation of the Aikikai and the dissemination of the art. That is not them. Again, to be historically accurate, there were deshi that O Sensei pointed to and made statements similar to the fact that they understood what he was doing they understood the art, they could do the art. Some he awarded with rank before he understood the modern ranking system. While there were others that he pointed to and said that they were not doing his art. Again, at the start of that quote, He's very clear. I will tell you then how I, Ueshiba, was able to understand it. In other words, you're probably looking at me and you're wondering how I'm able to do what you're seeing me do. Okay, 
I'm going to tell you how I was able to come to do it. And so what follows should really pique our interest. Only what follows makes no sense. And today goes even further than making no sense. For some of us, it's actually quite abhorrent, dangerous, threatening, idiotic. But he tells you, I had performed spiritual practices daily in order to rid myself of attachments to anything in the world. Seeing these quotes, a poster on Reddit, commenting on on them but stemming from issues over translation states the following quote I don't see any of this as a problem just don't get religious and use your brain when reading anything unquote Here is that epistemic gap we left off with in the last episode. Here, what O-sensei is saying is noted as a wisdom that goes back centuries and in terms of cultural history, can be traced to at least 6th century BCE China. Of course, it goes further back when you look at it universally as a human insight. Meaning what O-sensei is uttering from a certain point of view was at least at one time considered to be the epitome of wisdom. And then on the other side of a particular but single generation comes to be associated with stupidity. Just don't get religious and use your brain when reading anything. Such that the utilization of your brain is anti-religious. And to get religious is to not use your brain.
to be unintelligent, to be stupid. But somehow, while that makes sense to most of us, we forget how the founder preceded his answer. He is attempting to share with us how he did it. And when we hold firmly to our own modern episteme, we unknowingly say, we don't believe you. And we don't care what you say. And in those utterances, we hold the belief without any reason to it that as we seek what he was able to achieve, that it can be sought for and found without following him. In the positing of that possibility, we have right there and then violated our own attachment and dependence upon reason. Because what if it's true, the following? What if and let us, for the sake of discussion, let, let us take off the table the spontaneous application of the art and the spiritual maturity of the individual, which personally, and to be transparent, I think those are very, very central aspects of training in Aikido and definitely more important than this third aspect that we will keep ourselves with. So we take off the spontaneous application of the art and the spiritual maturity of the practitioner and let us just talk about Kihon Waza, tactical architectures. What if it is the case that the execution of Aikido's tactical architectures can only be done correctly within a particular 
psychophysiological environment. What if it is not just a matter of how you move your body, which angle you step at, at what rate, But if the angle and the rate themselves are influenced by things that we moderns clearly designate as belonging to the realm of the mind, I think if you took a structural analysis of O-sensei's ideas, you would see that is what he's saying. He is saying, if we look at it structurally, that he did certain practices on a daily basis that were aimed to rid himself of worldly attachments. Let's take something I've observed from law enforcement in critical incidents. And I think any kind of, again, anybody that has seen real violence where the potential for the irreversibility of death is possible and the travesty that goes with it is pressing upon you not on the horizon but right there in front of your face in those kind of arenas you will see people be divided generally within two camps. Those who are overtaken by fear, demonstrated by an incapacity to make decisions, itself demonstrated by confusion, a lack of presence, fetteredness. And a second camp made up of people who are able to function, able to apply sound strategy and appropriate tactics. having a mind that remains fluid and functional 
at the speed of life. When you stay as general as you can, but go deeper, you'll see that the first camp becomes very egocentric in their orientation to their current environment. You, you will be able to note that that egocentric orientation generates that lack of presence, that reduction in awareness. And that poor performance in decision making. And that it is associated with fear, which itself is associated with an overconcern for one's continual existence. And in the second camp, you equally see no egocentric orientation, no loss in awareness, and no over-attachment to self-preservation. And when you go deeper and you look at what is the self that is being preserved? You are simultaneously going to see a person's attachment to their material body. And to those material things that constitute through an intricate e interweaving their sense of self. And in the second camp, you don't see that. You can talk to those people in the second camp later. And they might say some utterances very akin to what O-sensei says here at the end. There's a kind of loss of self. They repeat statements akin to what moderns might recognize as a flow state. There's moment 
or that becomes a moment of great peace for them. Even a kind of ecstasy. It's pleasurable. It feels real and more real than everyday normal life. They experience a sense of, of belonging. They think this is where I belong. This is what I was made for. There's a comforting warmth You'll feel all this shit leave, all the meaningless crap. And if you could, you'd prolong it. And secretly you can you can recognize that you're getting addicted to it. The distinction between these two camps and these two different ways of experiencing the same thing makes connections between fear, material attachment, self-attachment, and the subject-object dichotomy. And also, martial performance. To this day, trainers in the military arts, they know this. But trainers for centuries have known this. And O-sensei's understanding here is not unique to him. And one of the first places where we can bridge this gap between the modern epistemy and the pre-modern epistemy is question... Two things. One, the body-mind division of the modern epistemy. And two, the priority of the mind over that body. In pre-modern systems of thinking, You did not have either. It was assumed that every action and every thought worked across 
what later became a division of body and mind. And people that wish to function in these kind of environments, they still understand that. So if I have an art, let's just keep it very rudimentary. And let's just start with Katata Dori. If my uke comes in as prescribed, I can note them as yang. I offer my wrist in katatadori, and I can note it as yin. And here my goal is to move beyond yang and yin to ancient ideas pertaining to an unsayable reality. to some field of potential that gave birth to yang and yin. And what you usually see, however, is Nage in their attempt to maintain katatadori, do not move into that potential field beyond the subject-object dichotomy, but instead themselves in their effort to perform katatadori or to perform the prescribed technique, adopt a yang physiological energy. And like that, the ideals of Aikido are wiped away. And one is practicing nothing more than a yang to yang conflict. Now you're going to tell yourself, don't do it. Don't do it anymore. Don't do it on this rep. But you can't stop it. And what modern man has done in buying wholesale and hook, line, and sinker 
the body-mind dichotomy and the prioritization of the mind over the body. is set up this strange paradox wherein they reduce their efforts to an intellectual processing. Okay, I'm going to try not to do it this time. This time I won't do it. This time I'm going to do something different. That's the prioritization of the mind. But they keep from themselves the ancient way of deconstructing and reconstructing this yang to yang clash the ancients would say as long as there is a you you will always clash and in every grab you attempt the you that you are attached to is reified and made more real. If you want to stop the yang to yang clashing, you must lose the self. and all that goes with it, all that reifies that sense of self. And so he says, I had performed spiritual practices daily in order to rid myself of attachments to anything in the world, and I had the experience of seeing my light body, which was once the body of Fudo Myo, carrying a great shining light of fire on its shoulders. And at another time, I became the body of Kanzeon Bosatsu. I asked questions to myself, and then I understood. I have the universe inside me. Everything is in me. I am the universe itself. So there is no me. And if we take that thinking and we build the bridge across this epistemic gap, what is he really saying? That there is that there only is 
a psychophysiological training in the art. We just have to understand the pre-modern use of the category spirit. And to note that when we say psychophysiological, we mean, they mean, or sensei means, no body-mind division and no subject-object dichotomy. And since he's telling us that, since he's answering how he did it, I do not think it's a stretch to hold that that's the only way you can do it. If we are to follow this, and as having taught it to others for decades now. And this is why I do an episode on this. There is a practicality to what O-sensei is saying as there is for any modern-day cop that gets themselves into critical incidents would understand quite easily. But due to the nature of training, in particular that is no longer truly a battlefield art, and so practicality does not really drive it, to correct itself. And due to the fact that we come into it knowing so much about it, while never having practiced it. And add to that the fact that we are moderns fully ingrained in the modern episteme. It becomes very difficult to apply ourselves in accordance fully with what O-sensei is talking about. We are more likely to be like that Reddit poster and side stupidity next to this kind of thinking. And for that reason, it is important, I think, or better said, it is helpful to understand the obstacles we have as moderns for understanding pre-modern ways of thinking. And as I said in the last episode, Michel Foucault is, in my experience, his thinking is at the vanguard 
of helping us bridge that gap. Some things that can be generally said about Foucault. Like Osensei, he is rarely understood fully in academia, but he is equally popular. Today in the university setting, you'll see people just put a Foucault quote at the start of their thesis somewhere in their slide presentation. With rarely a tie-in, and more commonly, a misreading or a misunderstanding of his thinking. There is so much cultural capital around Foucault, like Osensei, that his name and his words are almost talismanic. Their proximity to your own work brings value to your work. So it's very possible to hear about Foucault or to read about Foucault, but to have it be very unhelpful. So allow me to preface how I am suggesting we use Foucault here. Foucault's scholarship takes advantage of a sociological phenomenon. That is, that truth like any kind of resource, is battled over. And as with any kind of battle, the winners of that battle get to decide what was being fought over and why. then it takes a second advantage of a historical phenomenon. And that is that there's always a kind of blanket that's put over the actual genesis of a given truth as it waged war and as it gained victory, that hides from the user all the effort 
an agency that goes into making a truth become self-evident. What Foucault does is a kind of archaeology. Wherein he goes to the moments that preceded that battle or that took place in the battle or right after the battle to find that blanket. And he uncovers it for all to see. He does not go on, as some scholars might, particularly those of a political activist vein, to denounce one truth in the face of another. That would, in the end, contradict his own work. He does not even denounce one as being better or worse than another, or one that works and one that doesn't. They all work. They all function, but they all play this truth game. He leaves for the reader to make their own decisions, what they want to do with their activism or not. But I think you can't really derive an activism from Foucault because it's all a game. And the most anti-Foucauldian thing you can do is to say there's something outside of the game. And what he did with this scholarship is to point his investigative tools where we moderns have totally forgotten about the blanket, where our truths are self-evident beyond imagination and even beyond our doubt, where we cannot unthink them. And the, the end result of Foucault's scholarship, while it may not lead to a social revolution or a political activism, 
and remain consistent with itself, it does lead, and I believe this was his aim, to a personal liberation And it is in that sense that we can, through Foucault, come to understand someone like O-sensei who was thinking with a different truth game. Because we can, in some way, loosen the bonds, our own thinking, and our own way of thinking, our own truth has upon us. Most people out there have not read Foucault, and most that have do not understand him. So most people out there do not know about this truth game. Most people do not know that there is a history to thought and to thinking. Most people do not know that O-sensei was thinking with one truth game. And the modern Deshi, perhaps trying so hard to be Western, were thinking with another epistemy. Most people do not know that philosophically these two epistemies have existed throughout human history side by side. And that social dominance is not determined by their utility, certainly not by their truthfulness, but by other social factors related to power, economics, and institutions. That in some ways the world or our experience of the world is very open to both ways of thinking. Nor are most people aware that these truth games are never ultimately decided. And Foucault's book, The Order of Things, kind of helps free us just a little bit, just enough to perhaps translate or transfer what O-sensei is talking about into statements and ideas that us moderns can understand and if not appreciate 
at least accept as another way of experiencing the world and the art. Because I hold that so intricate so intricately weaved is this spiritual aspect or this psychophysiological aspect to the art. And pretty much in, agree in, in agreement with O-sensei that you cannot do the art, you cannot understand the art without it. That if all you do is train over and over in the art, in its physical, tactical architectures, in its kihon waza, if that is all you do, and if your mind aspect consists only of utilizing your intellect to try to motivate you internally into becoming other, then you will forever fail at his Aikido. The modern idea that the founder's religiosity could be dissected out and the art remain viable is wrong. It is not true. And if we do not find a way back to it, that, more than anything, will be what is responsible for the extinction of the art. It will not be its lack of martial viability. It will not be its absence of internal skills. It will be this. And this killing virus was put into the art from the moment it was tasked with disseminating across the globe. So let us spend some time here just to loosen our own modern epistemies hold over our thinking. Let us spend some time reading two small sections from The Order of Things by Michel Foucault. One is from the foreword. And in the foreword, he's reflecting upon how the ideal reader would read this book. He says, he would recognize that it was a study of a relatively neglected field. In France, at least, the history of science and thought gives pride of place to mathematics, cosmology, and physics. Noble sciences, rigorous sciences, sciences of the necessary, all close to philosophy, one can observe in their history the almost uninterrupted emergence of truth and pure reason. 
The other disciplines, however, those, for example, that concern living beings, languages, or economic facts, are considered too tinged with empirical thought, too exposed to the vagaries of chance or imagery, to age-old traditions and external events, for it to be supported that their history could be anything other than irregular. I'm going to stop so we make sure we get out what we need to get out. So again, you have to remember that Foucault is not holding up one truth above another. He, there's always a kind of sly sarcasm in everything he's saying. So he's not holding the hard sciences, mathematics, physics. These are true. In fact, he is noting how, as these have come to dominate the truth game of today, they do so by positing that those other sciences, those less rigorous ones, the ones concerned with living beings, languages, that these hard sciences follow these rules and that's what makes them hard sciences, but these other sciences do not. And he's saying at the time that he's writing this book, that is the assumption. And he's going to go back in time and do an archaeology of thought, of knowledge. So these less rigorous sciences, he goes on, at most they are expected to provide evidence of a state of mind, an intellectual fashion, a mixture of archaism and bold conjecture, of intuition and blindness. But what if empirical knowledge at a given time and in a given culture did possess a well-defined regularity? In other words, what if, before the hard sciences came to dominate, what if other ways of thinking, other kinds of sciences, did have their own rules? That it was not just intuition and blindness going forward, but an equal attempt to abide by certain rules of reasoning. He goes on. If the very possibility of recording facts, of allowing oneself to be convinced by them, of distorting them in traditions, or of making purely speculative use of them, if even this was not at the mercy of chance, what if there were rules? If errors and truths the practice of old beliefs, including not only genuine discoveries, but also the most naive notions, obeyed at a given moment the laws of a certain code of knowledge. If, in short, the history of non-formal knowledge had itself a system, that was my initial hypothesis, the first risk I took in writing this book.
You see, what Foucault is working against here, and really, as I said, there's always a kind of sly sarcasm to what he says, because he makes the reader deal with what he reveals. He does not tell the reader. He is no Marx. He does not tell the reader what to feel and think and do. So while this book may be about pre-modern ways of thinking, the unsaid to what he is writing is that modern ways of thinking are no less participants in the kind of truth game. So let's jump to the preface where he comments further on why he opted to write this book, The Order of Things. This book first arose out of a passage in Borjas, out of the laughter that shattered as I read the passage, all the familiar landmarks of my thought, our thought, a thought that bears the stamp of our age and our geography, breaking up all the ordered surfaces and all the planes with which we are accustomed to tame the wild profusion of existing things, and continuing long afterwards to disturb and threaten with collapse our age-old distinction between the same and the other. The passage quotes a certain Chinese encyclopedia in which it is written that, quote, animals are divided into... A, belonging to the emperor. B, embalmed. C, tame. D, sucking pigs. E, sirens. F, fabulous. G, stray dogs. H, included in the present classification. I, frenzied. J, innumerable. K, drawn with a very fine camel hair brush. L, etc. M, having just broken the water pitcher. N, that from a long way off look like flies. Let's stop there. So, he's reading this book, and in the book, it cites an old ancient Chinese encyclopedia. And there's a lexicon. It gives certain categories. And these categories, by our standards, are hilarious. Yet, animals are divided into it. There is an order of things that categorizes same and other, nonetheless. Again, those categories for this encyclopedia is belonging to the emperor, B, embalmed, C, tame, D, sucking pigs, E, sirens, F, fabulous, G, stray dogs, H, included in the present classification, I, frenzied, J, innumerable, K, drawn with a very fine camel hair brush, L, etc., M, having just broken the water pitcher, and N, that from a long way off look like flies.
he goes on. In the wonder, in the wonderment of this taxonomy, the thing we apprehend in one great leap, the thing that by means of the fable is demonstrated as the exotic charm of another system of thought, is the limitation of our own, the stark impossibility of thinking that. But what is it impossible to think? And what kind of impossibility are we faced with here? Each of these strange categories can be assigned a precise meaning and a demonstra uh, sorry, demonstrating context. Some of them do certainly involve fantastic entities, fabulous animals or sirens, for example, but precisely because it puts them into categories of their own, the Chinese encyclopedia localizes their powers of contagion. It distinguishes carefully between the very real animals, for example, those that are frenzied or that have just broken the water pitcher, and those that reside solely in the realm of imagination. The possibility of dangerous mixtures has been exercised. Heraldry and fable have been relegated to their own exalted peaks. No inconceivable amphibious maidens, no clawed wings, no disgusting squamous epidermis, none of those polymorphous and demonical faces, no creatures breathing fire. So what, what he's talking about here is fantastical as their categories may appear to ours, there is still some rules that certain animals that we have are not allowed by their ways of thinking. Meaning, not animals that we have in our own way of thinking, but animals we know have existed in pre-modern mythology or in stories such as dragons and demons and things like that. So at some level, this ancient encyclopedia of China is still drawing a distinction between what is possible and what is not possible. He goes on. The quality of monstrosity here does not affect any real body, nor does it produce modifications of any kind of bestiary of the imagination. It does not lurk in the depths of any strange power. It would not even be present at all in this classification had it not insinuated itself into the empty space the interstitial blanks separating all the entities from one another. It is not the fabulous animals that are impossible, since they are designated as such, but the narrowness of the distance separating them from the stray dogs or the animals that from a long way look like flies. So again, this last sentence is it. What he's trying to say is that with certain modes of thought, as the world is ordered for us, as we juxtapose the same and the other, that is order, what is impossible is not the fantasy or the fantastical but to cross the lines between what was designated as same and what was designated as other.
to put this into our own practice. An art wherein its apex practitioner holds that ego attachment, self-attachment, material attachment, are obstructing to the execution of it, of that art. If the apex practitioner holds this, but if we, in our own order of things, as it is an order of things, as we will not only hold that that is not true, we will actually make it impossible. It will be beyond not just what we conceive, but beyond our conceiving. In the book, Foucault goes on to give this pre-modern episteme a name. He commonly refers to it as an episteme of resemblance. For me, I think that word is still too much of our own modern episteme. So our modern episteme is the scientific episteme. What aspects in it that I found detrimental to following O-sensei's instructions? Or its ordering of time and space? its subsequent use on linearity and sequencing. The pre-modern episteme is one better understood not as resemblance but as concentric truth. It is a compression of time and space. Where linearity is contrasted with universality and sequencing is contrasted with simultaneity. It is within the episteme
of universality and simultaneity, the compression of time and space or the unification of time and space, however you want to understand it. That O-sensei's thinking, like the thinking of all mystics, follows its own rules with reason according to those rules. that makes it sound. That it is not just the arbitrary whims of intuition and chance, but the abiding by its own order of things. And again, this order of things is not particular to Japan, to Omotokyo, to Osensei, and nor does it hold or support or is it supported by things antithetical to its own tenets. So for example, it would be unreasonable by its own order of things, by its own rules of thought, to give any kind of uniqueness or speciality or specialness to Omotokyo doctrine or religiosity, which is why Omotokyo adopts a discourse wherein it negates its own, like any kind of good mystical tradition. to get stuck on triangle, square, circle, is to be a priest or an academic. From the beginning of Motokyo, even prior to its beginning, was already noting the interfaith effort of things like the Parliament of World Religions. Early on, they separated themselves from the Japanness of Shinto. and even from the polytheism of state Shinto. (laughs) 
Whatever practices O Sensei did, they were in all likelihood Omoto Kyo practices, but these were practices that were aimed and designed according to this order of things. So the goal is not to figure out triangle, square, circle. The goal is the same as it is everywhere. The reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. To make something doctrinal or dogmatic which you do when you say it's these practices, these symbols, these are what counts, then you're applying the pre the this modern epistemy and you are making it impossible to reconcile self attachment. Again, one does not need to understand this history and probably one should not bother with it because of the nature of ourself. That we are very prone to dogma and doctrine because we are very prone to self-attachment. And my only offering of it here is to try to loosen the bonds of that self-attachment by loosening the bonds to our own order of things. And only for the purposes of creating space for a set of practices that operated through a reasoning belonging to a different order of things. In the end, it is these practices that count, but these practices must be aimed at exactly what the founders said they should be aimed at. Omoto Kyo today as it was in Osensei's day. But as it goes back, all the way to where we held some discussion, even 6th century BCE China, the arts in this way, by this order of things, through this epistemy, are equally considered 
spiritual practices. And they are upheld as such. Because they function through this way of experiencing the world. Not because they match some sort of contemporary moral code, let's say one of nonviolence. Because they are used as a catalyst for, as a testing ground for, as a stressor to generate an adaptation in self-detachment. And the generation of mystical communion. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.